Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Relish the Journey. Miles Biggs here, your fearless host. And my guest this week is Jay Larikis. Jay is another Minnesotan. Add him to my list of Minnesota interviews. He reached out after seeing some of my content with the other Minnesota guys. And he's got a very interesting story, a very broad background, really built in entrepreneurship and in helping society, really, at the heart of it. He's, he's got a big heart, big ideas, and big ambition. And so I love Jay's story, and I know there's something that all of you can relate to. So after you listen to this, send me your feedback. Let's talk about it. Let's talk to Jay. Let's bring him back and answer your questions because there's so much to unpack here. So I'll shut up unless you get to it. Enjoy, everybody. First, I want to start by saying thanks for reaching out. I'm always happy to add another Minnesotan to my uh, my deck of Minnesotans here. <laughs> the circle I keeps know. growing. It's fun. I know. It's just been around Robin with everyone. Yeah. As you probably know, I started with Back Pocket, and then Tyler Webb called me and made friends with Brandon and Station Astronaut and all them guys, and obviously stumbled across you and thought what you were doing is cool. So I figured I'd reach out. Yeah. So Jay Loricus, I appreciate that, uh, <laughs> that the phonetic spelling of your last name that you sent me, cause I definitely would have butchered that. Yeah. If you're in for a funny, go listen to the back end show on my episode of back pocket and they made an entire game out of it. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Those guys are, are great for bits like that. All right. So you got a plenty you could talk about, man. I mean, with everything with winning, you know, winning the contest at St. Thomas to start Addiction U with your marketing and media business, you know, through a Google search, checking out before this, I found, you know, Jay Larikis Ventures LLC, which must be your holding company for all these different things you're doing. Um, yep. And I guess I'm, I'm arriving to a question eventually, but what I like about uh, one of your bios, I thought was really funny. You said you're a serial <laughs> entrepreneur. And I guess that's French for a lot of crazy ideas. Yep. Uh, so let's start there. When did you figure out, you know, you were the French for having a lot of crazy ideas? Like what led you down this path of, of instead of deciding to be a, a halfway decent employee for somebody else's business, decide to start several of your own? Right. I guess it first starts if I were to go way back as a kid. I was born with it more or less. I was the kid that would flip over the laundry basket and wait for my parents to get home from work and sit at the top of the stairs and try to sell them my toys. <laughs> or whether it be lemonade stands or vegetable stands and all of that as a kid, it was just always something I found fun. And then when I really narrowed it in and sort of understood entrepreneurship as a whole was definitely in high school. And I went to Chaska High School and they offered an entire business capstone so I could take a variety of business courses there. And so I took those and none of them were specifically entrepreneurship, but through like intro to business and marketing and finance and accounting and all those kind of things, you really start to focus in on business as a whole. And within that, I really like to do my own thing. Like I never thought a corporate job sounded fun. And so from there, I kind of came out of high school saying I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I decided to go to the University of St. Thomas primarily to study entrepreneurship because I was well aware of a great entrepreneurship program. And that's what I wanted to do. And one of the cool things about it was that it allowed you to start real businesses as a part of the program. So it wasn't necessarily taught out of a textbook. And so from my very first entrepreneurship class, we got posed with the idea where we had to start a business that generated $800 in income. And uh, that's where it all sort of started. That's such a great idea because you're right. People do get flack for going to college and being an entrepreneur or even 
the idea of how do you even study entrepreneurship, you know? Right. But mm-hmm. you study it by doing exactly what you did. You start a business and you learn from it. And that's neat that they created that bubble for you to learn and fail in and, and grow from. So what did you decide as, you know, an 18, 19 year old, what business did you start to make 800 bucks? All right. So it was me and a f- and then again, we're 18. And this is our first class. We have no real experience. So we did kind of what many do is a sort of cost effective entry point, which was a t-shirt business. And our idea was to incorporate the Minneapolis homeless community, which is pretty prevalent in Minneapolis. We have a large homeless community. And we wanted to do that by going to these day shelters and stocking them with art supplies and really interacting and understanding our homeless community and allowing them to create art that we would then scan and utilize as our t-shirt designs. And we'd reinvest in these day shelters by donating a portion of our proceeds. And basically all we wanted to do was break even. So it didn't really bother us giving away some of the profits because it was for the sake of the class. And so we had spent weeks in and out of these day shelters, hanging out with people, talking to them, prepping them up for what we wanted to do. And uh, the day came where we were like, all right, here's all your art supplies. Now we're ready to rock. Here's the submission bin and we'll be back in a week. And we got there that week later and checked out our submission bin and it was filled with literal trash like they had used it as a garbage can (laughs) which was one of our first learning experience that you know resonation is key and uh there's certain skill sets in doing that so we had to basically backpedal a little bit and lame out to a certain extent where we made our own t-shirt designs still with the intent to donate a portion of the proceeds back to the day shelters and we basically bought 40 t-shirts and uh we basically hustled them to friends, family on college campus, convincing our friends to buy them for 30 bucks or whatever it was. And we ended up getting through them all and making our 800 bucks. But I feel like we learned more in that and uh, trying to put out fires than any textbook can teach. So that's where it all started. Yeah, because the textbooks will say, you know, be prepared to hit something you don't expect to happen and have a plan. (laughs) And then... Where, and that for you was actually showing up and p- picking trash out of your arts mission bin and having to pivot. So that's that's great. Um, yeah, rolling with the punches is key. Yeah. That's the business it's in. So is it a requirement of the class to have it pair up with some sort of philanthropic effort or is that just something you chose to do? Nope, that was something we did. So a lot of the companies were just traditional, you know, for-profit businesses. But we went out of our way to try to do something there. We felt it helped our value proposition since it was just sort of a uh, lame t-shirt company that having that aspect would help us. Right. And we think it did. But yeah, that's why we did it. So what intrigues me about that is that um, Addiction U is aimed at helping people as well. And you were trying to help the the homeless day shelters. It's a a little bit of a theme there with you. I'm just identifying. I don't know if you've thought about that is... Has have you always seen you know entrepreneurship as a way to intersect between the business side and the humanity side of things? Yeah, absolutely. I even throughout college was involved in Enactus, which was a competitive entrepreneurship team, and our entire team focused on social entrepreneurship. So it's always been something I really focused on, and you know, I feel sometimes for-profit businesses are the best way to make an impact. There's a lot of great, you know, NGOs and 501c3s out there, but there's something unique about having a for-profit company 
and being able to go about it that way that was appealing to me. So through Enactus, we worked with a lot of other people's social businesses that weren't necessarily my own and helping them grow and identify needs within their business, help them solve it. And so when the time came again for me and uh, my partner, Eric, to create a business for this competition, it was pretty clear to us that we are most invested when we are helping a cause. And so we picked a cause that was pretty near and dear to us both. And we started creating Addiction U. Yeah. So let's let's just pivot right into that. I don't want to spend the whole podcast on it because I know you've done a bunch of other podcasts about Addiction U. So I don't want to just yeah. have you say the same conversation. If anybody listening to this is interested in the full Addiction U story, just search Jay's name. It'll be in the show notes and you'll find it everywhere because I did when I Googled you. And it's yep. a really cool story. So give me the, the elevator pitch, the overview of Addiction U, how it came to be. I think the contest is cool that helped get you get you funded. Just to add some context. Yeah. So I guess it all starts with why we wanted to create Addiction U. And I'll give you the rundown version for the people that don't know. Is Growing up, my dad was a very bad drug addict from the time I was about 12. He was hooked up in a lot of hard stuff, crack cocaine, and was extremely abusive amongst other things, disappearing. It was a very toxic home environment for a matter of years. And uh, through those years, again, trying to keep a long story short here, we learned a lot of things, did a lot of things right, did a lot of things wrong. My mom was a superhero in helping us persevere all that. She went to school and worked full time and basically raised my sister through my teen years. And by the time I got into high school and college and had figured this whole concept of how to love an addict and how to find success from adversity and all these kind of tangible things, I went into my high school classes where by curriculum, we had to learn our chemical awareness or our drug awareness units. And I hated how they were being taught. And that was so fact-based, stimulants versus depressants. And here's a scary picture of a guy on meth and sort of these scary straight kind of things, but you never got to hear anything personal. And having been through everything I've been through at that time, it stuck out to me. And so I reached out to one of my counselors my senior year and was like, hey, can I just tell my story? You know, maybe it'll resonate with someone or they can take something out of it that I did that can help them. And uh, they said yes. They gave me a few speaking events. And again, keeping a long story short, I've been back multiple times every year since. New schools add me on every year. And I kind of developed a passion about talking about addiction or being the child of an addict or even a loved one of an addict in general and what you can do to, you know, bear that a little easier. And so I won't tell my partner Eric's story, but he had similar experiences with addiction in his family. And so we were like, well, if we're going to create a company, it better be something we care about. And Addiction U was born, which was uh, taking sort of a tech twist, 21st century grasp on addiction and counseling and rehab and all these sort of scary topics that no one likes to tackle because it's the addiction business and who gets involved in that. And uh, we wanted to basically come up with a knowledge commerce platform, which for the people that don't know, you probably see knowledge commerce every day in the form of a Facebook ad of some tech entrepreneur trying to sell you their sales funnel or something of that nature. But we could take that same concept and use it for good and say, you know, hey, here's how we loved an addict. Here was the three things we learned about parenting a child of an addict and really kind of consolidate all this really niche, unique information from ourselves and from other people that had gone through it into this database of knowledge of everything you need to know about loving an addict whether you're the parent, spouse of one, brother of one, whatever it may be. And uh, that's basically the concept that we created. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So that's the tech the tech twist is it's like sign up for this online community, I guess, right? I've heard yeah. you describe it elsewhere, like instead of having to go to well, basically like the church rec room where Al-Anon's hosted, right? It's like right. you can do it on your couch from your house. Right. And, and uh, it's sort of a spooky concept. And we always thought the sort of stigma around addiction and rehab and Al-Anon and AA and the entire thing was just spooky, especially to kids was one of our main focuses. And we really wanted to try to bring that knowledge into people's homes and computers and phones and wherever they may be right. so that we could reach pe- mo- more people because many, many people just don't take the first step in going to one of those meetings and rather trying to change their mind. What if we just offered them another solution? That, that's a great idea. And so how how far along in the process are you? Is this up and running that people listening can go subscribe <laughs> to this or is there a yeah. launch date? Where are we at? Uh, it, it's a journey. So we came out firing and uh, we competed in the Fowler, um, which I imagine we'll want to get into in a minute. But it was a business competition that allowed us to earn some funding. And we hit it hard in creating this entire concept. And keeping a semi-long story short, again, we hit a lot of roadblocks from people in the industry, from playing this game of opinion where it is not medical advice, it is merely opinion. How does my opinion help everyone? There is a lot of question marks around it. So a few months in, we put the brakes on it and we pulled it down and we said, we need to regroup. And in the meantime, we've been taking on Addiction U as more of a speaking event type thing where we utilize our platform and our knowledge and we go out to high schools and we speak um, different events. And in the meantime, we're sort of revamping how we communicate because simply put, we pissed a lot of people off somehow. <laughs> sure. Well, that's how, you, that's how you know it's it's working, right? Right. If everybody was happy with it, that means nobody's happy with it. There's always got to be that, <laughs> that line somewhere. Right. And uh, there's so many opinions from the sort of, in quotations, professional that comes from a Hazelden or a Betty Ford that is backed by clinical study. See, none, nothing we were doing was clinically approved or meant to be taken as medical advice, but people reach out with their issues. We even took one flack, a bunch of flack from one specific company about using the word addict, which we thought was interesting. They preferred the term in long-term recovery. And so there's so many people that are quick to sound off and leave you a review about what they didn't like about it because it is such a touchy subject. Right, And I think we learned immediately why so few businesses have tried to take on this industry is because there's no pleasing anyone. And I think that's been part of our journey is accepting that. And, uh, you know, we may, half the people may not agree with us or with our experiences or theirs may differ. But if there's any that do get it and can take something out of it, you know, we've done something right. And so that's kind of the process we're in right now of figuring out what exactly that is going to look like come relaunch and we don't have a date yet, but it'll be soonish. Sure. Well, what I love about that is it's sort of going back to this conversation. Nobody would use drugs if, you know, this is an egg and this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs worked decades ago. There wouldn't be all this stuff. So it's interesting that. I mean, there's a ton of data. Yeah, I could rant about it all day because it's a hot button with me. But since DARE was founded in the early 80s, overdoses have gone up every year since. And there's, you know, it's not universally DARE's problem. Obviously, population's gone up and there's 
other factors in it, but it clearly hasn't helped. And uh, it really hasn't changed much. I mean, you can walk into almost any D.A.R.E. program or chemical awareness program in any public high school in the nation and essentially see scary posters and get fed fairly standard facts and put on some beer goggles. And Well, it's the same thing with um, sex education, you know, or right. any any stigma based discussion or uncomfortable, you know, it's going to get too real. We might offend somebody if we say this. It mm-hmm. gets boiled down to, well, you can't argue with the numbers. Let's just throw, call it science and throw facts and then, you know, play it safe. So, right. in many ways, and, uh, you're probably not even taking on an industry, but creating a whole new one. Yeah. And with that comes all those challenges and all those learning experiences. And naturally, anytime you want to take a stance in an industry, all the other sort of industry-related questions get thrown at you from forms of, what do you think about legalization? What do you think about Narcan? What do you think about this? And uh, it's hard, you know, is bringing in more resources because I've always said from day one that my goal was, you know, to motivate and inspire and push people to succeed. And uh, one thing that sort of inadvertently came with that was the tons of people sliding in your you know, Instagram messages and Twitter DMs pouring their hearts out to you. And that was something that was fairly unexpected of the direct reach of what should I do? This is my parents' situation. I'm 13 years old. What should I do? And, uh, you know, who am I to tell you exactly what you should do? The only thing I can really speak to is what I did. And uh, I always tell people that. So if we can bring in more of a network, you know, partnerships with therapists and rehab facilities and be able to point someone to a place where they can get that actual help. I feel like we become more of more value then. So that's something we've been looking at too. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, the idea I wanted to talk about with all of this, cause it is a powerful story and I don't want to like not give it the, the time it deserves. So by all means, if you feel like you need to explain more of the stuff with your dad to put it in context, then we can get into that. But my thought, and I've been exploring this recently with a lot of different people I've talked to and listening back to old episodes is I keep coming back to this this thought and this idea that oftentimes we see people like you, right? You're the serial entrepreneur. You've got the Instagram accounts. You've got, you know, you're, you're holding company, you know, you've made it, Jay. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you've made it. You won the contest. You got the funding. You own a business. You're at the top. You're successful. And that's what we see, right? It's all these smiling right. pictures of you on Instagram and and then you're talking about your story more than most people do. But generally, all we see is the good stuff. But mm-hmm. what we don't see is what I call the unseen work that right. gets people there. So mm-hmm. as a serial entrepreneur, I mean, you talk about a little bit with trying to, to sell t-shirts to help the homeless and th- some of the things starting your companies. But what are some things people don't see? What are some things that even though you've done a lot of podcasts and talked about your story that you still haven't really talked about that have been really rough moments or learning experiences or when you almost hung up the towel and you know said, this isn't worth it, I'm going to go get a job instead of making a job. I mean, what's, some, what's been some of your unseen work moments that have built up into what we see on the outside as your success? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a bunch, obviously, as anyone who's been through the trials and tribulations of trying to start businesses. And and uh, so we kind of emulated it and did a whole line of chicken-based apparel, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, and we rolled it all out and we dumped thousands into it and had so many SKUs and 
and ads and influencer budgets and all this stuff that we dumped into it. And it fell flat on it, ready to fall asleep with this sort of look of, I have no idea what we're going to do or the relationships with families and my girlfriend that deals with all my insanity and being gone all the time and Austria to describe me, <laughs> which, you know, we jokingly argue about. But if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it big. And I have no small ideas. And uh, that to your original question can be exhausting and a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of strain on relationships and friendships. And you really just go to bed every night telling yourself, you know, this will all work out eventually and uh, waking up every morning, convincing yourself that you're right. <laughs> so what, what does success look for like for you then? Or maybe you've had successes, maybe the right words, fulfillment. Like what are you searching for in all this that you keep trying all these different things? You know, like there's that entrepreneur that just goes all in on one thing all right. and then they, they're all in and you're bouncing around and trying out all these things. You've got certain things you're more passionate about than others, but you're still trying. So yeah, I think it, it's something good. Sorry to cut you off. No, I right. think it's something I'm still figuring out every day. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you when I was young, as most people think when they're young, now granted I'm still young, but when I was like in high school, um, you know, the money, of course, was appealing to be able to have a nice place and a cool car and be able to travel and do all these fun things was, you know, maybe the reason I took the leap unknowingly. And then once you start to obtain those things, you start to look at everything else. And uh, I was just joking with my girlfriend again today. And I was like, I'm done working for the year. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, I'm done working. And she's like, you can't be done working. And I, I know that. And I'm like, I don't need any more money at this point. I just really value my time and my sanity. And uh, we, I'm not actually done working for the year, but that was my, my joke. And what you come to realize once you get the things you thought you wanted, that you want something else. And uh, what it, the tough part to figure out for a lot of people and a lot of entrepreneurs have come to find out with myself and others is many entrepreneurs and business people are what I call a man of more. Like you just want more, whatever it may be, whether it's money, time, happiness, things. And so figuring out, you know, if you're addicted to more or if you're chasing the wrong things. And uh, for me, I think I started off in the wrong boat, which was chasing money. And now it's you realize there's always more money and there's never more time. And so now I think time becomes the thing that you chase the most and you you learn that either you run your business or your business runs you. And uh, that's where I think I've hit in the last year was realizing that I need to carve out time for people and activities and trips and memories and things of that nature. And that you can't just be married to the game. So to sort of answer your question, what does success look like is having the time to enjoy what's around you. And uh, sometimes time comes in the long run because it takes you a while to create it in a sense. But that's where I'm at. I love that, man. There's, there's probably eight different podcasts in that you know two minutes you just said. And <laughs> I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I've, I came to that exact realization recently myself as well. Um, and it's interesting, right? Like you said, you get everything you thought you wanted and then you look back and you're like, wait a second, this isn't what I thought it would be. And then you realize some of the things you neglected along the way are what you actually want. Right. And I had that internal battle where I, I, you know, it's easy to say that. And then I think to myself, 
okay, but if I didn't have all these things and I always just liked what I want now, would I still, what I want, what I'm saying I don't want anymore? <laughs> like, is it that grass is always greener sort of thing? Um, right. It's a hard thing, especially for the, the men of more. I like that. That's because I think I fall into that camp a lot too. I mean, right. talk about late nights. I mean, I do stuff like this almost every single night. You know, mm-hmm. and I have a wife and a son and it's easy now because he's almost two and he's like asleep at 730. But eventually <laughs> he's going to have stuff going on in the evenings and I won't be able to do all my crazy side stuff like I'm doing right now without missing out on that stuff, which like you said, with the gift of time, I know I don't want to do because I can't get that back. Exactly. Um, and you use the word addict there, which I think is very interesting with this talk about addiction you. And I think it's a good point whether you realize you made it or not is – Addiction, you, it could be chemical substances and drugs or alcohol, but Mm -hmm. it it could also be addicted to entrepreneurship or business or your job or, you know, so many different things where an an unhealthy obsession with something, no matter what it is, could be classified as an addiction. And you could probably have a whole course on dealing with each version of those in addition to the initial topics that started the whole idea. Right. And it's funny you say that, too, because it's something we've begun to look at a lot, because when you say addiction, your immediate thoughts are going to be, you know, drugs, alcohol, you know, maybe gambling and some of those other sort of secondary addictions. Um, But like you said, addiction literally is a I don't want to call it a mental disorder, but it happens within your brain. It's a genetic risk allele. It is something that physically you have is a predisposition to be an addict and you either have it or you don't. Sorry if I misspoke there. Um, and for the people that do, it manifests itself in different ways. And it is, in a sense, an obsession or a uh, constant need for that certain thing and feeling like you can't live without it. And no matter what that is, it's unhealthy. So being able to recognize that in ways that we don't often you know, identify as addiction is important. And there's ways you can get a handle on those things too. And uh, it might just be a future avenue for us. Yeah. And so I'm sure you get the question a lot in that exact context. Okay. So I recognize myself as being an addict or I know somebody that's like that, whether it's addicted to work or drugs or alcohol, Mm -hmm. what do I do? I'm sure you get that question. But on the flip side, there's probably more telling would be, what do you not do? Like, what, what are the, the traps people fall in that they shouldn't be doing when they're talking about addiction or addressing it or trying to help someone? Uh, yeah. So a lot of the common ones we see and I always encourage people not to do is sort of the uh, tough guy syndrome of like, I can handle it. I don't need to talk about it. It'll figure itself all out in time. I got this type mentality. And uh, a lot of people fall into that because, you know, people rarely like to admit they have a problem or have any sort of weakness. And uh, it's one of the worst things you can do is bottle that up, even if it, you you know, you might not have to go, you might not be at a point where you need to go to a full blown rehabilitation service or anything of that nature. But being able to, it's a cliche saying, but the first step is recognizing you have a problem. Um, It's true. And talking about it is the number one thing. Uh, The second thing that I see a lot, this is more from a drug and alcohol perspective with families is using your past as an excuse. And if let's say it's a child, uh, if you're a parent and you're like, you know, my my son had a bad night. Can we please get a pass on his homework? You don't have to go to practice tonight. You had a hard day type thing and give them those excuses. Uh, They'll oftentimes cling on to those forever. And if you give your child or your 
parents, siblings, spouse, whoever it may be, an excuse to not succeed, oftentimes they'll cling on to that forever. And so that's my big thing is sometimes you got to be tough with yourself. There's a lot of tough love and there's a lot of accountability in it from the person themselves that may be going through it, as well as their family members and everyone around them. You know, you really have to be accountable. And uh, yeah, I could go into that all day, but that's yeah. the big thing. So as the guy that preaches and teaches accountability and tough love, who gives that to you? Who holds you accountable? Uh, yeah, from day one, it was my mom. I mentioned earlier, my mom was a saint, but through my dad's addiction when he was out of the picture and my parents divorced when I was 13, uh, my mom went back to school full time and worked full time and wow. never let my little sister or I, you know, skip a day of school or a practice or pass up a homework assignment. There was that constant, you know, hold your head up high, be who you are and don't let anyone convince you otherwise mentality. And I honestly attribute that to almost everything throughout my life growing up and being moderately successful in the sense that I didn't, you know, succumb to addiction or trouble or anything of that nature. And even through business was, you know, this extreme ownership and accountability because no one don't let anyone take that away from you. Like because someone did you dirty yeah. is not an excuse for you not to be you. Yeah, this might be a weird question, but in some ways, do you think your father's addiction ended up being a good thing for you because it has made you who you are and the entrepreneur you are? That that focus on not skipping things, do you think that still would have been there if that major life moment hadn't happened with him and what he was going through? Yeah, absolutely. I look back at it now and think, uh, you know, do I regret what happened? And I've pretty much settled on the answer is no. Kind of like you said, I mean, everything I am now is because of that. And because I can speak in hindsight and hindsight's always twenty twenty. I sure. can say that was a great thing for my family to go through. And it's sad that it had to be my dad or, you know, my mom's husband. And that hurts, but it made us all better. It, you know, taught us to fail early, work hard and hold yourself accountable from a very young age. And people will always tell me now because I'm young. Keep in mind for people listening to this, I'm only 22 years old. So people will always say, you know, like, how did you get all this? You're only 22. You know, you're so far ahead. And they'll say, you know, how did you get so lucky? And I always say, I didn't get lucky. I uh, just had to start a whole lot earlier than everyone else. Sure. And uh, yeah, force you to grow you to, fast. Yeah. Force you to be 18 at 12 years old. So. That's right. So that's where a lot of it comes from. But don't get me wrong, when it comes to addiction, and in my story in particularly, it never goes away. My dad currently, uh, and again, you can listen to more of this on other podcasts, but my dad currently lives in Colorado. He still suffers with addiction. He's in and out of jail and prison on various charges, and he will find ways from time to time to sort of sneak through the grapevine and find myself and mom and sister and reach out and create fake Facebook accounts and he needs money for this wow. or wants to talk about that. And so it never goes away. And every holiday, you know, you realize that it isn't what it once was at dinner. And uh, you kind of take all that stuff with you. So it never becomes just an overwhelming success because it never goes away. But there's certainly the good outweighs the bad, in my opinion, in my story, at least, and hopefully for many others. Yeah. And then you sharing your story is going to help make it so other people don't have to have the exact same story you have, which I'm sure is your whole point in pursuing this. Yeah. And I mean, simply put, one of the most powerful tools I have in this is being 
this sounds funny, but being me, being young and moderately cool and interesting for kids to resonate with so many people in this addiction industry and school speakers are, you know, no offense, but 50, 60 year old PhDs that kids don't exactly resonate with, or, you know, they kind of tune out when they walk into the classroom and being able to not be that and be one of the few that is willing to talk about such a stigmatized issue is one of the best things I have going for me when it comes to resonating with people and uh, being unique and authentic and someone people could enjoy talking to rather than fear talking to. Sure. So that's my thing. Yeah. And it's interesting how there's so many different types of stigmas. And I've encountered this with talking to different people on with this podcast is, you know, I'm not just in one topic. I'm talking to you about addiction. I've talked to people that have given up children for adoption or adopted children, you know, my own mm-hmm. own family members about certain things, business people, speaker, like the whole thing. Right. There's so many different stigmas, but whenever I talk to anybody about it, it's like we all know there's stigmas and that it's kind of silly and shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. But I think it goes back to what you said about how it's just been ingrained in us from such an early age that even though we know it shouldn't matter, like it's programmed in us to matter. Right. And then it I affects a, all these things. I created this example for our presentation back in the day on sort of why addiction carries such a different stigma. And a lot of people will call addiction a disease. So we compared two diseases. And this is to take absolutely nothing away for anyone that's had to experience cancer or have a loved one. But we looked at a family where the dad had cancer and let's say there's a wife and two kids. And there's that outpouring of support from the community and the other parents are, you know, say, they said, be nice to that boy. He's going through a lot right now. And they're bringing casseroles to your door. And there's that public outreach pertaining to that disease and many others. And then if you were to swap that cancer with that addiction, the environment turns and all the other parents say, you know, I don't want you going over to that boy's house. We don't know what his dad's going through. I don't want you taking rides from them. And you sort of get blackballed in a sense. And we actually came up with this idea called the black box theory, where when you're a child of an addict or brother, spouse, sibling, whatever it may be, um, you kind of put yourself in that box that you're sort of affiliated with that addiction and your household is toxic. And then you carry that and you're kind of the kid that everyone's told to stay away from. And that's what steers a lot of people the wrong way. And that really is why the addiction stigma, in my opinion, is so much worse than many of the others. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great metaphor. And it's so true. And it's like, you just ask yourself, well, why? (laughs) It comes down to, I guess it's just like anything. You could swap out stigma for, you know, racism or sexism or anything in the topic of, you know, sexual orientation. It's just what somebody else's belief that's been projected on us. Like you said, it's not somebody's it's somebody saying in each of those situations, be nice to them or stay away from them. Somebody else saying that to you, not what you feel inside, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just that external versus what people know or feel, you know, for themselves. The, ex- right. the, the, the thoughts of the village become our own thoughts in a way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Especially with, obviously, I'm keep resorting back to my to addiction because that's my forte, but you're you're forced to be self-reliant and there's so much more than others because there isn't as much of an outpouring of support for it. And when there are support groups and stuff, like you said, they sort of have that, you know, church basement kind of feel to them, which is less than inviting. And uh, you really don't see anything else that that carries that. So yeah. it's a tough feel. Yeah, because even that it's in the basement. It's like <laughs> that happens at night. And right. you don't want to tell anybody you're going. It's like you're. There's so much shame associated with it. When right, and you, you'll never 
you'll never see a Facebook ad for one. You know, you got to go to the coffee shop, you know, right. tack board and tear off a piece of paper. It's, everything's hush hush about it. Yeah. Well, that's goofy. Well, I'm happy to help tell the story because that's, I, I'm, I'm, I love storytelling. I don't care if there's data or not, whatever those, those haters <laughs> right. are saying. It's when we hear other people's stories, we hear our own stories in their mm-hmm. stories and there's power in that. So it's, um, thank, I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate you asking the questions and being curious and trying to put it out there. Yeah. So what I always like to ask the advice question because I'm, I just like putting it in context that way. And it's, I'm always curious about that, about advice you've received and advice you would give that dichotomy of advice. And for you, yeah. I'll frame it in, I'll let you pick because we've talked about two topics, right? The, the addiction idea or being a serial entrepreneur, a piece of mm-hmm. advice somebody gave you as you're you know, going through struggles with either one of those that still resonates with you. And then somebody that's listening to this, that's in a similar situation, what piece of wisdom that you've learned along the way would you bestow on somebody so they don't have to make the same mistakes you did? Yeah. So the first one, I'm going to be semi-basic and knock both the entrepreneurial and addiction advice out in one nice. saying, because I think it applies to both. And it's simply, if you want the things you've never had, you have to do the things you've never done. And living in fear of your situation, whether it be as a child or spouse of an addict and sitting there, you know, wasting away the days, hoping that it all gets better in time. And you're only putting yourself behind. You really have to take that by the horns and, you know, create a better you aside from all of that. And the same thing goes for entrepreneurship. I mean, everyone, every entrepreneur dreams of the Silicon Valley life of glam. And uh, whether it's that that you're chasing or whether it's, you know, social good, either way, none of it gets done if you do nothing. And so all comes back down to if you want things you've never had, you have to do the things you've never done. And then my piece of advice that has come to me, I think I've already said it today, actually, but I'm going to resort back to it because one of my good friends told it to me. Uh, there's There's always more money. There's never more time. And uh, the quicker you learn that, the quicker you gain a little different perspective on life and what you're actually chasing. Because when the day comes, you know, you might have all that money, but there might not be more time. Yeah. And it's, again, I love hearing you say that as someone who's 22, Yeah. because the people that say that are the 50, 60 year olds who have a lot of money, Mm -hmm. (laughs) typically, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's easy for you to say that you're driving a Ferrari and telling me not to worry about money. Right. Um, and it just all, it falls flat. Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess I'm going to dive back into advice here too. The sort of idea, and this has been a little more popular lately, so I'm not as groundbreaking, but the idea of the sort of superhuman entrepreneur that hustles, 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 and sleeps four hours a night and gets up at four in the morning to work out. And that idea is not something I believe in. It's not something that I practice and it's not something that I preach. You know, you need your sleep, you need your sanity, you need your food. And you can never, you know, live up to your full potential if you don't have all those things fully intact. And so I'm sure there'll be people out there. You know, I have one of my buddies that always tells me if he wakes up three hours earlier every day, he ends up utilizing like five more days of the year or something. There's some, you know, data to that. But to me, it's not worth it. And lives five years less and wishes he had more time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So how would you how would you describe yourself and everything you've been through in three words? I would say I've, I've practiced this. So I would say authentic, ambitious, and humble. I think 
wanting more is not necessarily a bad thing. Having goals, having big goals is not a bad thing. Um, being ambitious is not a bad thing. Staying yourself through that process is important. And recognizing how lucky you actually are along the way is all part of the process and being a well-rounded and successful person, in my opinion. I love that. And for what it's worth, you definitely come across as all three of those things for someone that's <laughs> just met you here tonight. <laughs> I appreciate it. And, that's the goal. And well, it makes me wonder, have you encountered people that that maybe they don't tell you this, but don't think of you that way? Like you, you um, want to be authentic, ambitious and humble and they look at you as inauthentic, you know, lazy and cocky or something like that. I've haven't gotten the lazy one too often. I think there's always people that can find something bad to say about you. And I mean, I can find bad things to say about myself, lucky, spoiled, privileged, whatever it may be to have what I have at this age and the mindset I do. And I, I do come across and I actually say it a lot. I always joke with my friends, you know, when life's beating them down, I always say, Hey, you're too cool to too cool to care. And uh, that's how I carry myself a little bit, you know, with, with the blinders on. So I've heard the, the cocky, arrogant, side of things before from people, but it's it's not something I concern myself with too much. I can pretty much let my past and experiences and life speak for themselves in that capacity if people want to look a little deeper. Love that. So where can people find you, find addiction you, connect with you if they resonated with something that you said in this podcast? Yeah, yeah I'll give you I'll give you three of them. <laughs> uh, if you want me, if you have advice, addiction uh, entrepreneurship, speaking events, any of that stuff that pertains uniquely to me, you can go to my email, which is j at jlaricas.com. And that's J-A-Y. Um, for my marketing media company, if you want that, it's the101.co. And then we actually have a new startup coming out, which mostly pertains to real estate agents. But if you're a real estate agent out there looking for more leads, you can go to courselyleads.com. Um, jlaricas on Instagram, Facebook, I'm a pretty easy guy to find if you, if you reach out. <laughs> awesome. And I'm sure on this podcast, it'll have my last name spelt out, which will solve everyone's problems. Yes, we will spell it correctly. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on and have a great night. All right. That's a wrap on this week's episode with Jay Larikis. Big thank you to Jay for being our guest and a thank you to you for listening. For more of Jay go check out the episode notes for those links he rattled off. And if you have something to say about this topic of addiction in all of its forms, because I do think it's a very important topic, please reach out to me. I could put you in touch with people that if you need some help or assistance or I'll talk to somebody, get you in touch with Jay or somebody else that's in the relish of the journey circle that might be able to help you. We've got a large network here of people from all different walks of life. So even if I can't help you or haven't been through what you've been through, still reach out because chances are I know somebody who has. And there's power in sharing our stories, like Jay said, and power in simply raising your hand and saying, you're not quite sure how to figure out what you're dealing with. You can use some help. And that's what we're all here for. So please do it. And until next time, as I always say, cheers. <laughs>